Welcome to the next episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. On this episode, your host, me, Josh Hyde, gets interviewed by Elevate Nevada, a cannabis news, culture, and lifestyle magazine based out of Nevada. The interview is about my new feature film, American Hemp, a documentary that follows one and a half years through the American hemp industry from the perspective of state regulators in Colorado, a hemp foods company, and farmers big and small trying to make it in the American hemp industry. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you watch my new film, American Hemp. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, your interest in the American Hemp documentary. Yeah, of course. So let's start. Can you tell me a little bit about your filmmaking background? I'm kind of a film school nerd a little bit. I went to film school twice. From my undergraduate film school, I went to school at SIU, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. And I learned documentary filmmaking and, you know, just the basics. And then I went on to intern with my first real, I guess, production company, and they were Cartemquin Films out of Chicago, and they're a powerhouse for documentary films. When I was there, we were we were working on a PBS series called The New Americans, and they had been filming it for five to seven years, following about five to seven families through the first five years of them immigrating to the U.S., and this past year, they actually got nominated for one or two Oscars, possibly, in the documentary feature category and the documentary short category. So I didn't realize that I was being exposed to this high level of masters. And so when I was there, I was interning, and then I realized I had to go back to Ohio University because I didn't have what it took. You know, I just realized these men and women who are working on these documentaries at Cartemquin are dedicated and powerful storytellers, and I just needed more. So I wanted to learn how to write a script, and I wanted to have my first short film go into film festivals. So I went back to Ohio University to graduate school, and I learned how to write a screenplay. And then in my second year, one of my short films got to the Tribeca Film Festival, and then from Tribeca, it crossed over to the Berlin Film Festival, which is one of the top three film festivals in the world. And I was right. one of the only American short filmmakers at that film festival that year. And so it was very uh, powerful for me to be exposed to the what I like to call the Olympics of movie making because yeah. you realize that the world of storytelling is so vast and that these stories can be you know, distributed around the world. And so I was still a graduate student. And then what I did was I went back to Ohio University and I decided to try to make my first feature film based off the short film. And that was about a Peruvian street kid. The film was called Postales. It's available on Amazon Prime and everywhere where movies stream. And it's about a Peruvian street kid who meets a young tourist girl in the streets of Cusco, Peru. And then it becomes the story of cultural understanding through the eyes of these children. And how does the understanding of innocence help create a cultural connection? And that's a, that's a scripted narrative film. Yeah, yeah, that's a scripted narrative film. It's available on Amazon Prime and I think iTunes and a couple other ones as well, Google Play maybe. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I just continued to work and then I wrote another screenplay. And one of the screenplays I wrote and we made, it was a spiritual stoner comedy. It was called My Friend's Rubber Ducky. And it's okay. all about <laughs> two college students and it's a true story. Uh, it actually happened to me. 
Um, I helped a guy in film school produce a, a student movie, and then I ended up carrying a lot of that debt because he didn't pay me back. Basically, we were supposed to split the movie. And so this film, My Friend's Rubber Ducky, it's a spiritual stoner comedy about two friends who re-meet from college, and one owes the other one about $5,000 from a movie they, they made. And so they're having drinks at the house, and the guy's a real douchebag that owes him the money. And so because he's kind of douchey and, like, you feel it, the main character decides to take a plunger and plunge him into the closet. And then he traps him in the closet, and through the help of his hipster girlfriend and his Tai Chi stoner, possibly drug-dealing roommate, they blow pot smoke underneath the closet door to basically make him crack and become more human. And once he becomes more human, then he agrees to go to the ATM with them. And over the course of four or five days, they take out the money that was owed to the main character. And then what happens is, as the guy decides to pay back his debt, they allow him to do Tai Chi with uh, them. And then the guy who owes the money realizes that, you know, he should have paid it back a long time ago. And they actually become friends at the end of this kidnapping. Okay, cool. Um, so doing those two, those films, obviously those are, those are scripted films. Did you always have, having worked with Partemquin before, did you always want to get back into documentary filmmaking? I've continued to make documentaries and work on documentaries, even with the narrative films. So okay. in, in between those two, I, I helped out on this film that Showtime bought. It was called Sweet Mickey for President. And it was basically we went in two or three months after the Haitian earthquake. And we arrived in Haiti, and we ended up following one of their elected leaders that would go on to become the next president of Haiti in this kind of aftermath of the earthquake. So I worked on that film, and then that was really powerful. I think that the documentary stuff is where my narrative stuff really gets its foundation. Uh, Because when you're filming real people in real lives, you understand what real moments look like, what a real moment feels like. And then how do you create that in a narrative film where it's scripted? And so I think a lot of the documentary work does actually inform my reality. Then with American Hemp, it was, I was trying to make another movie and I had written two or three screenplays and then trying to pitch them, trying to get financing. And I was like, you know what? I can still make the narrative work and let me just work on another documentary. And so I picked, basically I put a couple rules up and the rules were I need to film something that's within six to 10 miles around my house. And then ironically, the Colorado Department of Agriculture's Industrial Hemp Division is about four miles from my house. And so I was like, okay, okay, so maybe it's a hemp documentary. And then I was like, I need a hemp food company or someone with hemp products on national grocery chain shelves. And so then that led me to Evo Hemp. And as I was doing research in Colorado, I talked to a lot of different companies, but a lot of them didn't really seem to understand the power of a video or the power of storytelling or the power of a movie. And so Evo Hemp was one of the few that really understood what it meant and like how they could use the extra footage that wasn't used in the film in some of their marketing because marketing budgets are still really, really 
you know, hard to find four hemp companies, especially at the time when I started filming. They were only in three regions of Whole Foods. And through the process of me filming, they slowly moved from a regional Whole Foods brand to a national Whole Foods brand. Right. So I was witnessing that that growth cycle. And so uh, just kind of helping and feeding in there. And then with the other farmers, I just tried to find as many hemp farms as I could that were close to me. And then so I could film yeah. them to kind of in, incorporate how the hemp starts in the field as it makes its way to the final product. So was this something like a subject that you had a background in or was it literally just it happens to be nearby so let me learn about it and see if I can do something about it? Well, oddly enough, I took a job as a bud tender because at a dispensary in Colorado because I wanted to write a script that was a romantic comedy between two trimmers, um, marijuana trimmers. And as I started to research the documentary or research this script, I worked in in the dispensary for three years. And I basically worked my way from the front of the store as a bud tender all the way to the back, you know, to be a trimmer. And then they were going to promote me to being an assistant grower. And I was like, I'm just a film guy. Like, I'm just trying to do this research. And so they integrated me into their marketing department at this dispensary. Uh, But the script that I was writing turned out to be a female revenge film where two trimmers would have to kind of fight for their life to escape from this drug-addled grower in the mountains. You know, Woody Harrelson in Natural Born Killers, kind of a reclusive grower that, you know, given into all of his own vices. So so he's more of a feral human than he is a real human. And so these trimmers go yeah. to trim for him, and then some things happen, and then they're forced to basically kill the grower, bury the body, and then in that process, they discover the the kind of extra marijuana that the grower had been saving, and then they discover his stash of money. So that story became about how two lovers overcome a violent world. And the trimmers are obviously the lovers, and then the weed grower in the mountains kind of represented the violent world. So, so I guess, yes, I did have a background in this. But I wrote that screenplay. That screenplay has been published. It's called How to Kill a Bad Man. It's actually on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Book Depository. You know, it's Waterstones, I think, in the UK carries it. So the, so, so that script got published. So I did have some background with it. Uh, but that's just because Colorado early on did medical and recreational marijuana. And then that kind of set up the infrastructure to do hemp. And then that just helped all the research be done so that now the modern hemp plant could emerge. So in a way, I guess I was trying to stay away from it because I didn't want to necessarily just jump on the hemp bandwagon. But then when I started filming it, I realized that people need to know about the journey of hemp from the field to the grocery store shelves. Like there needs to be some level of someone who's neutrally trying to demystify this story because a lot of the other bigger businesses in the hemp space right now, you know, there's only so much education they can do from their standpoint. And because they're doing all the business development, which is great, they're not necessarily doing the societal development, which is making sure that consumers know why it's important, know what it can be helpful with, you know, versus just getting the snake oils pitch, which I think, you know, a lot of hemp and CBD companies are going with kind of silver bullet marketing versus just addressing the complexity that that is. How much time did you spend? I know there's kind of dates and a timeline in the film, but how much time did you actually spend filming your subjects for this film? 
feel about like on and off for like two years, I want to say. I feel like I started shooting maybe a year and a half to two years, I want to say. Basically, I would, once I found the subjects, then I would try to check in with them monthly. And then as I was checking in, I would have to work work a whole bunch of freelance jobs, just editing various videos or shooting various commercial videos. And so I would get about maybe a week of filming a month spread out over the month and then a week of freelance work. And then the other two weeks, I would just try to lock myself up and and edit the actual movie. And then so as I started yeah. to shoot for a week and then edit what I shot, I started to assemble it into these sequences and and these stories. And then in that way, I started following it so that when there was a hole, I, I could say, okay, I need more farmer stuff. Let me try to figure out how to include the farmer story or, you know, the brand story or whatever it might be. And when you're in that kind of process as a filmmaker, where obviously everything is ongoing, these people continue to live their lives, they continue to run their businesses, how do you know when you have enough or when you're finished and you can now put the movie together and put it out there? You know, that's a good question. Um, I I think I just realized that I only had enough in me to get to 65 minutes. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I guess what I realized early on is that as we were filming, there were a couple things that I had to follow through. And, and so filming for three or four months, and then a couple of things happened where with the Department of Agriculture, they were saying that they have a year in review for hemp and that it's something that they put on YouTube, so it's totally public information, but I could come and film that. And so I was six months away from that, and then I was like, okay, I know I have to include that in the movie. And then once Evo Hemp had partnered with Alex Whiteplume of the Lakota, who live on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, then I knew I had to follow that product all the way to the grocery store shelves. Because, you know, I, I had filmed them going to the meeting, but once that meeting happened, then I was like, okay, when are you guys going to deliver this product? Okay, let me follow the story until you guys deliver the product. And then I knew that they were going to take the product into really, you know, there's this whole food scene in America and how food actually ends up at the grocery stores. And there's this big food show called Expo West and Expo East. And basically all the brands that you see in grocery stores go to this big food expo and then they try to get distribution with all the major grocery stores. And so I realized, okay, well, if they're going to do that, then I got to follow the making of this, you know, the first native American hemp product in the United States as it tries to make its way to grocery store shelves. And so that was kind of a little bit new to me because this was a long form documentary up to this point. I had probably filmed a subject for like a year but not yeah. two years. Or actually, maybe I... No, I'm I'm lying. I actually did a documentary in graduate school where I f followed a singer-songwriter through three years and three albums that that he was doing on his own in, independently. So yeah, I guess it's somewhat organically, but at the same time, there is stress of like, am, am I filming what needs to be filmed? And so I guess what relieved my stress was the editing because I knew what sequences I had and then knowing kind of what story you already have edited, then it's like, well, where is the next plot point? You know, what do I have to do to, like, keep the story going? And yeah. then I, and then as I was editing, I, I kind of just figured it out. And then the other one that was just purely, I guess, mathematical is we have an election coming. And 
when I released one of my spiritual stoner comedy, we released that during the, was it the 2016 election? And so as we were doing all of our marketing on Facebook and social media, we thought we were doing great, but then none of it converted. And so what we realized is that that during an election, there's so much extra money that's pumped into the advertising. Specifically in 2016, there was all of the, you know, extra money coming from, you know, all these different countries trying to participate in the outcome of that election. And so it was weird because... I realized that trying to market a movie during an election year is going to be really hard. You know, if it's X-Men, okay, it's probably significantly easier because it's such a big movie. But if you're an independent filmmaker, basically the conversation during the election year and all the ad buys are going to be, you know, just a lot more trickier. And I think I I probably spent more money on building a Facebook page with bots <laughs> on accident then, you know, I thought they were real people. So in a weird way, right. I have this Facebook page with 10,000 people on it. And so I realized that if there's going to be an election in 2020, then I got to rush the film, try to get it done so that audiences can see it before the election. What would you say maybe that you came across during the process or that you want to convey with the film? What's the biggest misconception that you think people have about hemp? I think the biggest misconception is probably that it's the same as marijuana. And then what that does is that just basically demonizes the plant a little bit because then you take away all the other uses for the plant, whether it's the seed, which is just a great food source. If anything, it was just probably the lack of information or education. As we were filming, I watched it go from like hemp not being a buzzword to hemp and CBD becoming the buzzword. And then when you see this, you're like, okay. And then... Really what it is, is it's the start of the disinformation, you know, because then you see all these companies trying to market their products, but in a way they're just using regular marketing tactics. But I think the problem with hemp is that if you know about hemp, it's because you're conscious. You're just conscious as an individual. It's something like one or 2% of the American public actually eats hemp food. So we've got a long way to go before hemp seeds arrive in everybody's oatmeal or everybody's salad or, you know, the topping to mashed potatoes, you know. And so what that allows is a lot of disinformation. So, you know, whether it's an isolate based product or a full spectrum based product, just people trying to tout how whatever their product is, is the best versus saying, you know what, mine might not be the best. If you have a CBD isolate product, these are the advantages and disadvantages of it. If you have a full spectrum product, these are the advantages and disadvantages of all the extra microcannabinoids, of all the extra terpenes, of of that whole plant extract. And so in a way, more than anything, what I've been seeing is how the American public and the American consumer is just being manipulated by some of the disinformation that, that goes out there. In a way, that led me to this next thing, which because of seeing that level of kind of spread of disinformation, I call it the silver bullet marketing. It's like our product will kill every werewolf. It is the si- right. it, it is the silver bullet. You never have to yeah. be afraid again. And you're like, what? I don't know if that's true. I mean, like, I don't know. You know, maybe you don't even need CBD. Maybe you just need a good form of magnesium to help your body function better. You know, it's yeah. not... What that led me to is I'm trying to develop the American Hemp documentary into a series. And so I'm basically trying to get that series to release two or three episodes a month 
on Amazon Prime and I'm trying to just dig deeper and then cast, you know, cast multiple characters so that we can bounce around. And then that way, if we ask a hemp and CBD company about the payment portal issue, then all five companies or, you know, a, a kind of chorus of voices can kind of speak to that issue from everyone from the small hemp startup that's just being operated out of someone's house because they just started to, you know, the middle of the road company who's like been around for four to five years to like a technology company that's trying to make, you know, hemp paper a a global thing. So it's, you know, trying to be able to cut between all the layers to try to remove the illusion. Because I think if the illusion is removed, then the American public can actually just look at it for what it is in a way. So is that something you are just in the development stage, or are you shooting for uh, shooting footage for it yet, or what's the sort of state of that right now? We're starting to shoot footage, and I'm starting to do all the research. So I've got a couple cast of characters that I'm meeting with. Tomorrow I'm going to go shoot some early interview stuff. And so my hope is that you know, we'll, we'll shoot for the next two or three months, and then we'll be able to start releasing episodes probably within the same same time. As we're shooting, we'll start to edit, and then we'll start to release the episodes. Having immersed yourself in this industry, what do you see for the future of him? What's interesting is I think it depends on the consumer. You know, I think it depends on how educated the consumer is. You know, because in a weird way, hemp is even being persecuted more than the food. You know, you've got these glyphosate certifications now that say, oh, our hemp is glyphosate free. You know, I think it's interesting because it's like, I'd like to see that glyphosate certification for all the GMO and the non-GMO foods that we can buy. So I think what's going to happen is my hope is that as consumers become more and more educated it just becomes a regular supplement like fish oil, like turmeric, like magnesium. You know, all these things have benefits that kind of increase your metabolism and can help increase wellness. And I think hemp extracts and hemp foods are similar. And I think the thing with hemp foods is that because people aren't using pesticides, because people aren't using herbicides, we have a, a clean food that we can now look at and say, look, this is a clean food. There's not this industrial food complex behind this food sourcing. And what's happening is as that comes on board, then, then you're starting to see the other big farm states trying to figure out if they can use pesticides or, or like herbicides or, or can we genetically modify the hemp crop, which is happening. As hemp moves forward, my hope is it goes the way of like boutique wines or even boutique coffees, you know? Right. Very, very much like we started with just knowing coffee was made, you know, by your dad or your mom, right? And then after that, then you have a Starbucks show up in the Barnes and Noble. And then after that, the local coffee shop gets more cooler. And then after that, the local coffee shop starts to serve the espresso, starts to make the latte art. Then after that, they get to single origin beans. And so I think in the way of how how coffee has evolved to be, oh no, coffee, it's black coffee, it's Folgers or Maxwell's house, it doesn't mean anything. To like, no, I, actually I want an Ethiopian uh, espresso with, you know, my cappuccino. So I want the single origin with, with my oat milk. <laughs> 
You know, so I think in a way, as consumers become more educated and know where their hemp comes from, they're going to be asking those same questions. But those questions are going to be, is it a full spectrum hemp extract? Or the exact opposite of that, which is, I work at the Veterans Administration, or I'm a fireman, and I want to try CBD, but I will be subjected to drug tests. So maybe you should start with an isolate-based product, because that's going to be safer for you. But then also, if you dip your foot into the isolate pond, then you should dip your foot into the full-spectrum pond. And so as people get to understand that, you know, what are these varieties? And then I think, you know, it's kind of like apples, too. Do, do you like the Granny Smith apple? Do you like the Pink Lady apple? Do you like the Fuji? And so I think hemp will be that way, too, because I think there will probably be varieties that are, are better for anxiety or varieties that are just more helpful for sleep or yeah. varieties that do have more inflammation capability uh, because they have CBG, you know, or terpene-rich mixtures, which, you know, will allow the cannabinoids to cross the blood-brain barrier quicker. So there's just things like that, that as people come into play, we're already seeing this with like vitamins. Are your vitamins sourced from non-GMO places and food? So I think in a way it's just going to follow some of these other things. And so consumers just have to constantly try to find the right education points for them. And then also know that if you see anything with a silver bullet level of advertising, just do your research into the ingredients. That's all. Sort of address this a bit, but what, what's the main thing that you hope people will take away from the movie after they watch it? That hemp is a new industry moving across the United States, and it's something that will be regional, meaning state by state adopting now that it's federally legal, and that it's just like a normal crop. It's like anything else we have in our life. And it's just basically been kind of demonized by the drug war. And I think even then, once we get to that actual place with hemp, then I think my hope is that we get to that place with the high THC varieties of cannabis. Where do you think there's been sort of a wave recently of cannabis-related documentaries? Do you think about where your movie fits in, or did you look at any of those other films as you were putting this together and putting it out? Is there kind of a, a wave or a community of filmmakers who are looking at this subject? I think there there are going to be a lot more hemp documentaries and a lot more cannabis documentaries coming out just because, you know, as humans discover things that can help us, hurt us, or things that are being persecuted, we end up telling stories about them. And so I think it's just another thing. You know, it's just something that people are doing and people want to know about it. And so my hope is that in a way... If you're an extreme nerd about cannabis and like marijuana and you just know a lot, you know, the documentary will just show you what entrepreneurs go through. You might not learn anything new about the marijuana or the cannabis plant. My goal was to basically make a documentary where you see people bringing a product to market so that everybody in mainstream America can be demystified and cannot demonize the process because they've seen it. And if they see the process, and if they see people working with that entrepreneurial spirit that's at the heart of kind of our country and are exposed to that direct reality of how hemp products get to the grocery store shelves, then they will not fall prey to disinformation or just fear. Fear about something that could just be 
one of the things that helps us grow a new industry as well as help help people in their life's journey well that about covers what i have unless there's anything else about the film that you want people to know about um it's available on amazon prime itunes google play and please watch it and please share it with a friend and leave a review because you know honestly there are these review websites for movies and you can pay them fifty dollars for like one amazon review and like i have not paid anybody for an amazon review so if you like it and you think other people should learn about hemp you know just please share it with a friend Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Filmmaker Podcast. The goal of this episode was to bring you to the front lines of an interview that filmmakers have to do to promote their films. And oftentimes when you're promoting your film, you're trying to find a like-minded audience who is going to bond with your film. So hopefully after listening to this interview, you'll go watch the American Hemp documentary. The music used for this episode comes from a new documentary film, American Hemp, available on Amazon Prime and streaming everywhere in between. I hope you listen to more episodes from the front lines of filmmaking, storytelling, and the creative process. Help us spread the love and the culture of the American Filmmaker podcast all over the world. Mm-hmm.